Hello and welcome to season three, episode three of the Detours in Music podcast. My name is Laura Rupel and today I got to sit down with Dr. Sam Ng, Associate Professor of Music Theory at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. I hope you enjoy. My name is Sam Ng uh, and the last name is an interesting one which I always have to explain to my students. Um, The last name NG is uh, of Cantonese origin. Cantonese is a Southern Chinese dialect and um, it is a tonal dialect. And uh, ng is actually more accurately pronounced as ng. I don't even know if you can hear it on Zoom, uh, but it is the lowest of nine tones. So when I try to explain it to my students, I tell them that they really have to lower their voice and make it very throaty to pronounce it correctly. So I don't even try to say it right. I just say it, you know, the typical Americanized way, which is Eng. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my name. I have been teaching, I'm an associate professor in music theory and I've been teaching at CCM since uh, 2008. Okay. Can you talk about your start in music? Sure. Um, so I guess my journey in music really started with my father's background because he was the one who was the most instrumental in uh, introducing me to classical music. Uh, so he grew up on an interesting island off the uh, coast of southern China, and the island is called Gulangyu, uh, G-U-L-A-N-G-Y-U. If you Google it, you'll find a lot of very interesting things about this island. Um, So it's a very unique place and um, two of um, its sort of uh, unique features are, I think to me, especially personal because, um, you know, I've been there two times and I um, witness, you know, how how very interesting this place is um, when when I was very young. So one of the things is that there's a very strong presence of Christianity there. Um, and I think it was because I've read some about it. I'm not sure about the, all the history that went into it, but uh, it was, I think, after the first opium war that a nearby city called the Xiamen, um, it was forced to open to the Western world. It became, you know, a, a trading port. And um, I think it was then that, um, you know, Western you know, Christian mis- missionaries um, came into China through shaman and also landed on that island. And the second really interesting feature is then um, how these missionaries brought with them uh, Western classical music. And so there is just a lot of interest uh, in Western classical music on that island. Um, When I was there a long time ago, I'm talking about almost 30 years ago, um, you, you walk around the island, you can hear little kids practicing piano everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's a really interesting piano museum there that I heard they house one of um, Chopin's pianos there. I'm not sure about that, but I think that's what I heard. So my father grew up in an environment where classical music was truly adored. And, um, and like I said, you can hear classical music everywhere on that island. Now, he didn't really have a chance to learn um, you know, formally or take lessons in any instrument, but he himself is very musical. So um, from my childhood, he really put a lot of emphasis in cultivating, you know, a love for classical music in me and my sister. 
Um, so, you know, back in the 70s um, in Hong Kong, which is, you know, the British colony where I grew up in, um, for children to, to learn music really meant for, for us to go through the graded levels of the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music, if that means anything to you or the listeners. It's a big system in the UK, which is still very much uh, in practice today. Um, so I went through the entire system. I went through all the grades, um, went all the way even up to one of their performance certificates called LRSM. Again, it doesn't mean much in this country to people, but it's supposed to be a big deal there in Hong Kong. So I, you know, um, practiced the piano pretty, pretty diligently, um, you know, through to the end of my um, senior year, you know, the end of my high school and, um, the curriculum that they have there is pretty rigorous in terms of ear training and theory. So it is um, during those years that I became exposed to, you know, this idea of studying music theory and counterpoint and things like that. When did you realize you wanted to go into music? So the year was 1984. <laughs> <laughs> I have the precise year down. And the reason I remember it so precisely is because, um, well, I mean, I was 10 years old in that year. Mm -hmm. I played the piano for about four years. It started when I was six. And um, I didn't mind playing the piano, although um, I didn't love it. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, like you said, it's something that, um, you know, just a lot of children were expected to do. I think more so now, in fact, um, some schools, uh, when you, interview, you know, when the children interview for some of the more sort of pre prestigious schools, um, ask how many instruments that they have started, you know, taking lessons in. Mm -hmm. So assuming, of course, that, you know, piano lessons um, are, you know, something that you must have under your belt. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so uh, back in the 70s, it was not as bad, but I still was expected to, you know, study the piano because of my father's love for classical music. But then, you know, in 1984, something happened to me. And what happened was I saw this movie, um, Amadeus, right? Uh, which is that movie about Mozart based on Peter Schaefer, I think. Is that the, the name? Yeah, it's play. Um, so honestly, I didn't really like the movie very much. Um, but uh, the interesting thing about that experience was that um, it made me listen to Mozart much more carefully than before. It's not like I had not listened to Mozart before. I definitely had listened to Mozart's music. I had played some of the piano sonatas in those four years. Um, but for some reason during that movie, I listened for the first time very carefully to Mozart's music and I just got completely mesmerized by it. And uh, so I started collecting cassette tapes. If <laughs> <laughs> you still remember them. Mm -hmm. I have some of these tapes that I purchased when I was 10 years old, uh, 10 years old. And um, so I collected a lot of cassette tapes of Mozart's music. And there was one particular piece, um, or more precisely, actually, one particular movement that convinced me that I wanted to become a musician when I grew up. And that movement was the finale of Mozart's Jupiter Symphony. Okay. I guess it. When I first listened to it, it drew me in so deep into that piece that I feel like I still haven't recovered from it. That's a good thing, I think. Yeah, it's just a wonderful <laughs> piece, yeah. So it really is, was that uh, the experience listening to Mozart's Jupiter Symphony, especially the last movement that convinced me that I wanted to go into music. 
yeah, after I decided that I wanted to become a musician, you know, the question was um, doing what though, right? I mean, there are still a lot of options. Uh, did I want to become a performer or something else? I guess early on, even though I was practicing the piano very seriously and going to competitions every year, I just never saw myself becoming a performer because I didn't think that I had the personality uh, I didn't have that showmanship or desire to, I guess, speak through mm-hmm. my piano playing to the audience. I think you have to have that, right, um, to, to pursue a career in, in performance. And so I didn't see myself doing that. But like I said earlier, you know, the, um, the ABRSM curriculum has a very rigorous um, theory component in it. And so I found myself really enjoying doing things like four-part harmonization and counterpoint. And, um, and of course, at that point, I thought that that was all <laughs> that music theory was. I thought, mm-hmm. okay, if you are going to go into music theory, basically you're gonna teach other people doing counterpoint and harmonization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, oh, maybe I should pursue a degree in that and um, see maybe I could be- become a music theory teacher, you know, at some level. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so I did some research about schools in the US um, and um, during the 80s, right, and the 90s, early 90s, when I had to make the decision of where to go to school, um, I guess in Hong Kong, everybody knew about three big schools here in the U.S. during those times. You know, um, the three big ones that everybody knew were Juilliard, Eastman, and Indiana. Mm-hmm. At least in my circle, everybody was talking about these three that I should pursue. Um, so since I didn't really want to become a performer, I didn't think that Juilliard was necessarily the best place to try. Um, not that I had any confidence in, at all of getting in. Um, Indiana at that point didn't have an undergrad theory program. I'm not sure if they do now. I don't think they do, but um, Eastman did. And so it was kind of by elimination that I applied to Eastman and got in. And so I ended up doing all my degrees there. Hmm, interesting. Why did you stay um, at one school, do you think, for all your degrees? That's an interesting question. Um, well, in fact, at the beginning, I really hated my experience hmm. um, at Eastman. It was not because of the school, mostly it was because of downtown Rochester. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know anything about downtown Rochester in the 90s, especially the early 90s, it was not the easiest place to live. Uh, especially coming from Hong Kong. I grew up in a big city. It was always very exciting. You know, every night there's a lot to do. So I was so used to that kind of lifestyle. And also I was a teenager and I didn't know how to drive a car. And so in my whole first year, my freshman year, I was stuck on one street, basically just crossing the street between the dorm and Eastman School of Music. Yeah. Even though I was part of the University of Rochester, you know, was not really in the campus. So there was not much of any sort of campus life going on for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was the difficulty at the beginning. But then in time, you know, I got to meet more friends and um, really had grown to love the school. My experience there, the education was top notch. Mm-hmm. And um, so I... Um, after I, I finished my undergrad though, I, I went back to Hong Kong and teach in a high school for three years. Okay. And it was during those three years that I decided, yeah, I do want to uh, pursue 
my you know master's and doctoral degrees in music theory so I can teach at you know uh, at the college level. And at that point, of course, the decision was, do I want to go back to Eastman or do I want to try someplace else? And I felt that, um, you know, I, I liked Eastman so much that I wanted to go back and, and get more out of it. Mm. And also, I guess that saved me money from having to, um, you know, travel from Hong Kong to the U.S. to attend the auditions, because at that point, actually, they, they already knew me very well that they didn't even require me to come on site for the audition so I just sent in my application by mail and um, got admitted and stayed for both my master's and PhD. What is something you struggled with in your undergraduate degree? You already talked a little bit about um, like the social struggles of living in Rochester but maybe something more related to um, music theory. Mm. Yeah interestingly I don't remember struggling too much with my academic studies. I enjoyed my studies thoroughly. Um, I think most of my struggles really had to do with um, adjustment to a new culture and speaking a new language. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up in Hong Kong, even though, you know, we were a British colony at that point, English was not really spoken as a first language and um, it was mainly just taught as a subject at school, right? So it's not used much in daily life situations. And I would say that I'm not especially gifted at learning languages. So it took me a long time to feel more comfortable speaking the language um, and feeling less self-conscious about it, especially when I have to talk in front of people. Mm. And um, the fact that I was, still am in some ways, um, an introvert, Mm. I certainly didn't help with that. Um, in terms of culture, the difference between Hong Kong and Rochester is pretty, <laughs> pretty great. Um, so I think one of the things that I struggled the most with was just the idea that we were expected in class to speak up, right, to express our opinions. And because um, back in Hong Kong in the Chinese culture, as students, we were expected to just, you know, sit quietly to listen to the teacher and absorb all the materials um, instead of having to regularly express our opinions on things. And so, yeah, it took me a while to get used to the idea of, you know, having actual conversations in class, you know, expressing myself in a foreign language. But I mean, I have think, I think I've made some progress in that <laughs> area. I mean, I'm brave enough now to do a podcast interview. Yeah. What is some advice you have for younger students when things aren't going as expected? So, um, you know, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to answer this question because I'm more of a theorist than a performer. But I will say, though, that thinking back to my earlier days when I was still practicing, you know, Mm -hmm. five, six hours a day. I mean, (laughs) I had I had those days, you know, a long time ago when I was playing much more seriously and had the time to do so. And I was performing in recitals also. Uh, I do remember going through long periods when I felt that I was not making any progress. Um, So, of course, you know, those days were really frustrating. But then I think what uh, brought me some comfort during those frustrating times was that um, I had, you know, a pretty tight-knit group of friends, especially in my church. And um, whenever we had social gatherings uh, and being the introvert that I was, 
I would always sit at the piano. Like I was saying, you know, I felt comfortable sitting at the piano to communicate with others, even though I may not always feel comfortable, you know, carrying an actual conversation with others, being the introvert of the group, and also sometimes just not wanting to have to speak in a foreign language, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would just a lot of times sit at the piano to entertain myself and also try to entertain people. And um, one thing that I remember is that my friends would always come to tell me how much they appreciated my playing. And I'm talking about non-musicians also. Mm. For some reason, they always enjoyed hearing me play, commenting that um, they liked the tone that I produced from the piano. I remember one... Um, particular comment, which was that you have such a nice touch hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, when other people play the instrument, you just have this nice touch and a nice tone. Hmm. And I always appreciated those comments because um, when I took piano lessons in Hong Kong, I studied with somebody who, uh, and he's a fantastic piano teacher. He's still um, teaching today very actively in Hong Kong at the Hong Kong Academy for, for Performing Arts. Uh, a very well-known and well-respected pedagogue by the name of Gabriel Kwok. He, uh, he was very passionate, very um, focused on teaching the students to produce a beautiful tone mm. right, from the instrument. And so um, while I was struggling to make progress and I felt like things were not going as, as expected, I would just always hold on to that and um, remembering that you know each of us has been gifted in a certain way that we have our unique strengths as not just people, but also as musicians, right? So, um, you know, I appreciate my friends, you know, doing certain things musically that I'm not able to do. But at the same time, I also realize that I produce a better tone than some of my friends do, right? Mm -hmm. So I think for me, I was really just trying to hold on to that, appreciating and um, embracing this gift that I have been given and not to you know, dwell on the things that I was not doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, you know, it still takes a lot of patience and hard work to, you know, improve in the areas that we were not doing well, that I was not doing well. But I guess in a nutshell, you know, I was trying to focus much more on the positive and much, uh, much more, you know, turning sort of outward in the sense that I, I was trying uh, to focus on using what I could do well to bless others, to communicate with others mm -hmm. that way, mm -hmm. than you know, dwelling all the time on the things that I was not able to do. Mm. It need you know a lot of strength and I guess hope also that you know things will go well and with a lot of hard work, but of course there are other things that after all these years, I'm still not able to do. Yeah. Um, because we, I think we all experience uh, at a certain stage that you plateau in your, your progress. Mm. Um, and that's okay. I mean, I still enjoy, you know, the, uh, the things that I am able to do at the piano and other things that I'm not able to do. I'll just, you know, listen to other people do them mm -hmm. <laughs> instead. I think the idea that you don't have to be perfect to be effective because mm -hmm. um, you're saying you're still able to give the music and um, it's still enjoyable for a lot of people, even if it's not as good as the best pianist ever. Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm.
What would you be doing if you weren't a musician or weren't a theorist? So the first thing that comes to mind is that I would love, and my wife is going to laugh if she hears this. Um, I would love to be a homeschool dad, actually. Uh, we do homeschool our children. I have four children. I, and I, I would say that I'm addicted to them. Um, so I would love to stay home and be a full-time teacher of four students. Yeah. <laughs> that would give me a lot of joy, a lot of excitement. But having said that, I actually don't know if I have the ability to do it well, because just seeing my wife do it every day and doing it so well, mm-hmm. while taking care of so many other things in the house, I, um, I think I probably will find it too difficult for me to go into this profession. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say that uh, between my wife and I, I have the easier job. Um, but I've also had other thoughts too. I think years ago, I... I kind of had this wish that I had gone into architecture because I love looking at buildings. Mm. These days, I don't know. I think I, I appreciate uh, food more than buildings. So maybe, you know, if I, if I have to go to a different profession, I think uh, being a, a chef is something that seems very appealing to me. Have you changed your career focus in your professional life? Um, yes. Uh, sure, I think I, I have. Um, so before getting tenured, uh, as they say, publish or perish, I would say after I received my tenure, I have tried to focus a bit more on thinking about my teaching, hmm. just thinking, um, you know, what I'm doing well, what I'm not doing well, and really what is the purpose of my teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and And when I say teaching, I'm not just talking about teaching music theory. I'm really talking about teaching in a sense of um, modeling for my students how I conduct myself as a person, Mm -hmm. first and foremost. And I would say that that is really the more important and the difficult part of my teaching um, than teaching music theory. Uh, Of course, I still love teaching music theory. I still see that as a very important part of my job. But just being a person that makes an impact in my students' lives, I think is something that I, I, I've come to realize is a huge responsibility that I have to take very seriously. Hmm. So um, just to give you an example, recently I had a conversation with my worship pastor at my church and he went to school, he went to university to do um, music composition and theory. Hmm. And so, you know, we sometimes talk about music theory and our experience and what he remembers from his undergraduate days. And he said this, he said that um, the music theory professors that uh, had left the most positive impact in his life were the ones who took an active interest in him as a person, Mm -hmm. but not the ones who could teach music theory well. In fact, the ones that uh, he said took the most active interest in his life were the ones who taught music theory terribly. So those are the the ones that uh, he remembered the most fondly. So that really shows me that, yes, I want to teach well. I want to teach the subject matter well. But really what matters the most at the end of the day is whether I am, you know, as a human being making a positive impact in other people's lives. Mm. And, And that really humbles me because whenever I think about that, I feel so insufficient. I, I feel so unworthy of of this responsibility. Um, So 
Um, I guess, you know, the question was, you know, whether I have changed focus in my professional life. And that, that definitely is a very big change. Mm. You know, um, focusing on my research, my output as a scholar, as an academic, to, you know, really looking at my job as um, a position that I have been given to make an impact in um, the minds of, in the lives of young people been privileged to come into contact with yeah that's very powerful and a big responsibility like you said but Mm -hmm. I'm sure the students appreciate you being conscious of that looking back are there detour moments in your life Mm, um so I guess detour I first need to um define detour right Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) So uh, I guess Merriam-Webster would say that detour is deviation from a direct course or usual procedure. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I would say no. I, I don't think that there are detour moments in my life. And the reason is because I believe that everything that happens in my life all contributes to my ongoing process of becoming what I should be and what I want to be. Mm-hmm. And so I, in that sense that I don't see anything as deviating from a direct course, right? I mean, after all, you know, I, I, I think about this and, and I, I have to question what is a direct course though? Who gets to define what a direct course should be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that uh, I can define the straight line, that direct path for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense that I don't see anything as a detour, I think everything you know, has a role to play in my trajectory, in my life mm-hmm. trajectory. So I guess, I mean, I know where my goal is and I'm heading there, I think. Mm-hmm. So the whole journey is one in which, you know, all the components, all the things that I've experienced have their, um, and here's a term for you, Laura. Mm-hmm. I think they all have their formal function. <laughs> they have their structural function, right? Mm-hmm. That play and they all fit together that uh, lead me toward the final cadence of my life. Do you have any other goals for your um, your job right now? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I've touched on that a little bit, but um, I guess to expand it a little bit more, I'll tell you a story. I think this is a very interesting story um, for myself and I'd like to share that. So, um, about two years ago, I reconnected on Facebook with a student of mine um, who took a class with me in 2005 at LSU, Louisiana State University, which um, was the institution that I taught previous to my job at CCM. Uh, so 2005 was a long time ago, and I had not been in touch with this person. Uh, but he sent me a message on Facebook um, in response to something that I shared. Mm-hmm. And he me that uh, he was about to finish his doctoral degree in Christian music ministry, and he wanted to thank me for inspiring him to embark on that journey. And I was really confused because I don't recall having any conversation with him about what he wanted to do with his life or mm-hmm. any, any spiritual topic at all. So I asked him how that happened, and he explained to me that it was the way I taught this music theory class, it was one music theory class that he mentioned, that he said that somehow the way I taught it made him feel like he was being discipled. Mm, 
motivated him to become a music minister. And to this day, I still don't quite understand how that worked, mm-hmm. how that was the case. Um, so I, I, just thinking back those years, I just remember myself being, you know, kind of naive and a young professor who was struggling with my new professional role, right? I was still navigating this very new environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what this taught me is this, that is, um, again, you know, teaching music theory is not just teaching music theory. It is also teaching other people, you know, something bigger than just music theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes we do that consciously. Sometimes we may be doing that subconsciously just by the way that we treat other people. Um, so again, you know, I will just reiterate that I'm, I'm privileged in having been given a position that really inherently has an impact in other people's lives one way or another. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a very humbling thought that I've been given, you know, such a big role and um, yeah, so my goal is really to, you know, fulfill this role so that hopefully, you know, in 10 years, I'll hear from my students today mm-hmm. telling me that, oh, the way that you taught that music theory class had really left a deep impression, you know, in me that had made a positive impact in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how well I'm doing that. I'm, you know, of course, every, everyone is just trying to do their best, right? But just having that in mind, being very conscious of that um, and making hopefully a, a positive impact in other people's lives, not just as musicians, but really as people mm. is, is really, you know, my, my big goal. And uh, for your listeners, I would also, you know, uh, give a more cryptic answer. I won't elaborate on this, but for those who are very interested, I would just say this, um, you know, what motivates me and what I do and really the big goal of my life is this. 1647, England, question one. And if you can't find the answer, you can also put in these letters, W-S-C, then you know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> I don't, but maybe someone does. <laughs> someone can Google it. I'm sure you'll find the answer. Okay. I was looking through those quotes and um, one of them really interests me. And I mentioned that I went, to, well, I, I went into music because of Mozart, right? So I guess I have to do the Mozart quote. The Mozart one says, it is a mistake to think that the practice of my art has become easy to me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, you know, we have this understanding, this image of Mozart, you know, being this genius who does everything so easily that he doesn't have to labor, he doesn't have to work, right? And I don't believe that's true, although I do believe that, you know, some of the things that he does really come to him very naturally. I still think that he has to work and labor and, and toil and and study uh, very intently and work very hard to achieve what he achieved. But it is an interesting question to consider um, because um, in, in my thinking about Mozart, especially Mozart's rhythm, I think he achieved something that is really remarkable in that his rhythm sounds so meticulously calculated on the one hand and yet so utterly natural on the other hand. Mm. It's perfect balance between what you set out to do very purposely, 
but also what you can do without thinking about it consciously it just comes to you very naturally. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a really interesting marriage between those two. And um, it also reminds me of an article that was published a long time ago by a scholar uh, named uh, Edward Lewinsky. The article is just simply titled on Mozart's rhythm. And in the article, Lewinsky talks about how Mozart's rhythm, again, the idea is that it sounds so natural. It sounds just so um, necessary that you can't imagine it to be anything else, Mm -hmm. that it's just how it ought to be. And he cites the last movement of um, the D minor piano concerto, K466, as an example. But if you study the rhythm and and the phrase design, you realize that there are a lot of very unusual things that happen there in terms of the phrase lengths and how Mozart um, deletes certain things and expands other things. The proportions are very, very unusual and asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you recall, but uh, the other day in one of our classes, you know, I was talking about the idea how you know, asymmetry is sometimes really necessary in order to promote a sense of balance. And in Mozart, you see that happening so much mm. that you feel like, wow, this is very balanced. But if you look at the phrases, they are not of the same length. Actually, one phrase is so much longer and louder than the other one. Mm-hmm. And how is he able to create a sense of balance, a sense of necessity, though? Uh, so I think... Um, Mozart definitely has to labor and toil and, and study and think very hard in achieving these things. Mm-hmm. But, um, of course, there, there's also strong evidence that he doesn't have to, you know, think as hard as other people do when he does these things. So uh, that, that quote really, I guess, drew my attention because I have, of course, my pretty much my whole life really enjoyed listening to Mozart and I have enjoyed thinking about these things, how he's able to just create such a sense of, you know, art in which the natural and I guess the, the effort, the man-made, um, you know, come together so beautifully. I think the whole, the whole thing, the whole interview really gave me a chance to, in fact, to, um, you know, think deeply about what I'm doing, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. it's always important to remind myself, you know, my mission as a music theory professor, as an academic, what I truly want to do with yeah. this position, this role. Yeah. So thank you for this. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed that interview. It was great for me to get to talk to my theory professor for the first time outside of a Zoom class. And I just wanted to read out loud one thing that um, Dr. Ng said. I want to teach the subject matter well, but really what matters the most at the end of the day is whether I am, as a human being, making a positive impact in other people's lives. And I just wanted to say, I think just by having that thought and by saying that to me and to my listeners, you are already making a positive impact in a lot of lives. If you'd like to keep up with the podcast, there are multiple ways you can do so. First of all, you can go to our website, which is detoursinmusicpodcast.weebly.com. You could also subscribe to our YouTube channel, also called Detours in Music Podcast. We also have a Facebook page and Instagram account where you can like and follow us. The Detours in Music Podcast is available everywhere that you listen to podcasts. 
but on Apple Music Podcast apps, you can subscribe and rate us. If you ever want to get in touch with me and give more direct feedback, you can email me at detoursinmusicpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you catch the next one.